This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast. It's great to be with all of you. Merry, Merry Christmas to all of you as we're getting very close to the date. And if you've been following along, you know we spent several shows going through Murray Rothbard's two-volume history of economic thought. So that was some dense stuff, some great stuff. Really enjoyed those shows. Uh, had a little bit of antagonism about Adam Smith, so that was fun. And after we were done, we decided that we would take a little bit of a break from the pure econ and go into some of the great old right figures. And the old right, of course, really represents the political tradition of Murray Rothbard, which, of course, in turn animates Lou Rockwell and the founding of the Mises Institute. So it's important stuff. I thought there'd be nobody better uh, to continue this little diversion over a, maybe a month or so into the writings and figures of the old right than my old friend, Tom Woods. So good morning, Tom, and Merry Christmas to you. Same to you, Jeff. And I'm glad this is the first time being on the Human Action Podcast where I now know where the theme music comes from, thanks to Jenna. I yes. now know it's Symphony of Destruction. So yes. there. Yes, and we pay <laughs> we pay to use that song, by the way. Do you really? Yeah, I didn't we know do that. indeed. We pay a, a, a big service, kind of like Getty Images, but it's ASCAP and a bunch of songs. And so you have a big catalog and and that one was amongst it. So yes, we do pay for all of you anti-IP people like me. Uh sad but true. So Tom, we've been talking about some old right figures. We had a, did a great show on Garrett Garrett and some of his work. We did a real fun show with James Bovard on H.L. Mencken, which we enjoyed quite a bit. But I wanted to get into some of the other figures, uh, like a John T. Flynn, like an Albert J. Nock, uh, like a Frank Chodorov, uh, to give our listeners you know, a, a little bit broader sense and to really encourage people to seek out these figures, read them. They're all widely available at Mises.org, oftentimes free in PDF or HTML format. But Tom, I want to start out by telling you a story. Uh, Glenn Greenwald on his Twitter feed, and he's a figure we both respect and admire, he had suggested a particular podcast uh, as a change of pace. It was called Know Your Enemy. I was unfamiliar with it, so I took a quick listen. And the idea behind it is a couple of left liberals who run the show try to reach out and talk to figures on the right, and as a result, present, you know, maybe more of a conversation or a less jaundiced picture of the other side uh, to create understanding. But the idea behind the podcast is helping lefties understand the right. And so in listening to this, they had some young guy on, and he's in sort of the normal conservative circles, uh, both old conservative Inc. and also what we might loosely today call the new right Uh, because he's young enough maybe to straddle both of those. And so he's very much living in this kind of think tank and magazine world, as are his hosts. So they're kind of in the world of the Atlantic and Slate and Salon and all that. And I was struck, Tom, during this conversation, first of all, they're all digerati, if we can use that term. So their lifestyles, their day-to-day lives are far more alike than they are unlike. This idea that they represent the two sides, it, it brought to mind your three by five index card of allowable opinions, because it was such a sterile conversation. And of course, the guy was an anti-Trump, never Trumper type. So he was a safe conservative, even in that sense, even though he's associated with Claremont and some of the uh, stuff that's gotten a little edgier. But Tom, my point for our purposes of our show today is that this young conservative guy, and and I don't know him, I won't name him. Uh, I was struck by the fact he had no familiar familiarity with 
uh, nor has he read the old right. In other words, this guy is talking about Buckley. He's talking about Edmund Burke. Uh, he's coming from a tradition where this, this early 1900s, the first half of the century old right, and I think we can use the term not just to mean pre-Buckleyite right or pre-Cold War right, but to mean the old right that was good on war and economics. And this kid had nothing. He had no knowledge of that tradition whatsoever. And what I'm going to suggest to you, Tom, for openers is that the new right, so-called, whether that's Trumpist or not, is dead in the water unless and until it embraces and understands and at least learns from the old right. Conservatism, Inc. has done a terrible job educating people in its, in, in its grasp, let's say, of their own history, because I don't even think they're trying, or they're trying to teach a history where it begins with, with Buckley. So that's the kind of result you get. I'll never forget being on the, – the, some of the oldsters will remember that Fox News used to have a program called Hannity and Combs, and it pitted Sean Hannity up against the token left liberal on the show who's since died. And uh, I went on to promote the politically incorrect guide to American history, and Hannity told me on the air that he had never before heard of a basically a free market criticism of the New Deal. He had never heard of this. <laughs> and I thought, well, wait a minute, you're supposed to be one of the most prominent radio and television hosts of Conservatism, Inc., and you've never – I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but you've never even heard of it? And, of course, he's operating in a milieu – in which people like Newt Gingrich and others say that uh, FDR was one of our great presidents. I mean, even Ronald Reagan said that. So, look, if if people like that can't acknowledge that there might be a problem with the New Deal, then, yeah, how do I expect a dope like Sean Hannity to know about it? So that's a, that's a major, major issue. I mean, these, these people were and, – and here we're talking about – you mentioned Garrett Garrett, but there's also – uh, you know, as you say, Frank Chodorov, John T. Flynn. John T. Flynn is somebody who's worth reading, who around, I think it was 1948, published The Roosevelt Myth, which was a treatment of Roosevelt all around, like all his policies. And it's the kind of book that none of these people would have the guts to write today. They would write books about, uh, like I, right-wingers were writing books about Bill Clinton alleging that he was corrupt, and look at this, cor look at Filegate, and what, who the heck, I don't even remember what Filegate was, you know, but this is the sort of thing that the Bill O'Reilly's of the world would focus on, the, the passing bits of corruption that you would see in any administration, Democrat or Republican. Flynn, a member of the old right, had absolutely no interest in that whatsoever. He wanted to put a stake through the heart of the policies themselves. And now, he's a little bit too sympathetic to Hoover for my liking, but all the same, that book, as I recall, hit number two on the bestseller list in the late 1940s for being just uncompromising, devastating takedown. Not as good as Garrett Garrett, but got way, way more readers. Devastating takedown of FDR and his economic policies. You just the, the, and, and meanwhile, Sean Hannity doesn't even know the guy existed or even that the arguments existed. Yes. And of course, he doesn't realize that radical opposition to the whole New Deal and later, the Great Society was actually substantive and intelligent and erudite at one point. For people who haven't read much or know much about the old right, you can probably start with the betrayal of the American right. Rothbard's great book, from, published originally in the early 90s, although he wrote much of it in the 1970s, 
We actually did a show on it a while back uh, with Tho Bishop and Patrick Newman. So go find that. Go check that out. But Tom, in t- about 2007, you were asked to write an introduction to a, a reprint of the book by the Mises Institute. So how did how did that come about? How, why were you asked to do so? Well, first of all, it wasn't really a reprint. The book had never been published before. What happened was, as as you know, after Rothbard died, so much was discovered in the archives. We could just keep publishing the guy and publishing him and publishing him. Uh, for example, we found this amazing monograph, like 80 pages or something, on Wall Street banks and American foreign policy. And Justin Raimondo wrote a forward to that, and the Mises Institute published that. And he had written that for some obscure newsletter you know, like investment newsletter or something that almost nobody read. It was this huge treatise almost, and it was largely unread, so that was brought out. So this was one of the things that was brought out, this this manuscript that had circulated. A lot of people had read, and Rothbard had come very close to publishing it from time to time, and then he would hold back and not do it. But a lot of people had read it privately, and uh, it was thought that now is the time. You know, this because when you read this book, although it is a history of this period of the American right, it's the closest thing to a Rothbard autobiography that we'll ever get. So that also made it interesting, um, you know, with his his having died, this is, this is what we're going to get. So I was given the manuscript, and it had, a, it had quite a few, uh, it, well, I don't remember if it was quite a few, but it's certainly a, a decent number of things crossed out that Rothbard with his own hand had crossed out that he didn't want to say. Like, for example, he would, he would make a snide remark about somebody or a movement, and then he would cross that snide remark out. Like, maybe his, his, he had softened on those people since then. And I had somebody recommending to me that I should keep the crossouts in, you know, just undo the crossouts and put them in. And I refused to do that because I felt like that would be defying his wishes. If I crossed something out in a manuscript and somebody published it, I would consider that a, its own kind of betrayal. So I didn't do that. So it was my job to go through, though, and with all the crossouts and whatever, and put this together as something you know as coherent, and to and to write the the uh, introduction to it, because I had written a little bit about the old right, and up to up to this point, the major book on it really was Justin Raimondo's book, Reclaiming the American Right, which is a very good book published by the Center for Libertarian Studies around 1993. Uh, that was really great, but it was not written by somebody who had actually lived it, who had known Frank Chodorov personally, you know, who had been in the heat of things, who had been expelled from National Review, basically for being a non-interventionist at the in the during the early Cold War. This this is the guy you want to learn about the mm-hmm. old right from, mm-hmm. and uh, and I was at that time in residence at the Mises Institute. And so I basically did what I was told, and I. But you didn't have to ask me twice. You you want me to? You're telling me you want me to bring out this long-awaited Rothbard manuscript and contribute uh, uh, an introduction with some historical background? <laughs> Absolutely, no problem. I'm delighted to do it. Yeah, it's interesting too. Rothbard was just a generation or so removed from the avatars of the old right. Most of them, like Mises and Hazlitt, for example, were born. Uh, let's say late 1800s, 1880s forward, and then most of them died somewhere between the 50s and maybe the 60s and 70s. So Murray is a generation behind them, or maybe a generation and a half. And then Justin Romano is yet another generation or two behind Murray Rothbard. So we we begin to lose some of that uh, close-up connection that we had. But it's interesting, Tom, that he dedicated the book, among other people, to Howard Buffett, Warren Buffett's dad, who was, of course, the great congressman, 
Um, and it, it must have been fun for you to go through this and be in his mind and produce this book. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely it was. So let me start off, though, by saying something about Howard Buffett, because uh, we later found, and when I say we, I mean you guys, I had nothing to do with it, but it was found in, in among Rothbard's voluminous letters, voluminous, that there had been correspondence between Congressman oh, Buffett yes. and Murray Rothbard. And I love the the letter that I, I read from, from the one to the other, because Buffett is saying— I have a son who's really interested in the topic of business cycles, and I see that you've written a book on the Panic of 1819. Is there any way I could get a copy of that? And you realize as you're reading it, he's talking about Warren Buffett. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's also saying, you know, I'm I'm doing my best getting through man, economy, and state, you know, and he's kind of hinting that it's not really his style to read a thousand-page economic treatise, but he's giving it a go, and he would like to see what he could do to help encourage its use in college classrooms and stuff like that. This is a sitting U.S. congressman writing to Murray Rothbard about his his radical Austrian treatise. That is very, very uh, interesting and encouraging and and uh, and, and surprising. Uh, but in terms of yeah, the excitement of uh, what what I loved was that we got to get a glimpse into the small details. Like, we knew the basic contours of Rothbard's life, his, his birth, his family, and this and that. But but to see what was happening to him in the 60s, where if he had just shut up about foreign policy, he could have continued to be a star in National Review and, and in those circles. But, you know, it kind of sounds a little bit like Ron Paul, doesn't it? He just morally couldn't allow himself to do that. And so he had to, in effect, break from those people because, uh, you know, he he pointed to Bill Buckley saying, we need to create a totalitarian bureaucracy within our shores in order to fight this battle. And Rothbard's view was you'll never get rid of that thing. The, it'll, you'll never get rid of that thing. It'll always find a reason to exist. We now see that with the military-industrial complex. They'll always find something. And it's, it's just like with COVID. Oh, we're just going to build this crazy surveillance vaccination lunacy institution, and I'm sure we'll just use it for this, and and it won't ever expand. Or yeah, come on, you know. So Rothbard just was not going for any of that, and yet Rothbard, it's impossible to be more anti-communist than he was. But his his view more or less was: if the Soviet Union wants to go, you know, walking around the developing world, gobbling up basket case countries that they're going to make into worse basket cases and that are going to bleed them dry. Why is this our problem? This is their problem. Let it be their problem. And let us, by contrast, not be viewed as imperialists competing with the Soviet imperialists over who gets what, but let us be the beacon of freedom that's, that says, we don't do that. The Soviets do that. The communists do that. We stand for freedom. We're not standing for installing our regimes instead of their regimes. We stand for freedom and let the world decide which side it wants to be on. I mean, that was more or less where he stood on it. And to, so to observe him being the most free market economist anybody had ever seen and yet being purged by the allegedly free market outlets that existed in the country at the time and him then floundering around trying to find anybody he could latch on with, so trying to find somebody, some group, anybody with a reach, with a magazine, with I mean, this is before the internet. Now we don't really care so much about does somebody have a magazine. You can start your own website and your own blog and publish whatever you want. 
But if you wanted to be heard in the old days, you needed to, to do that. And so this, you know, so to, to read the details of him reaching out to the left and feeling like there was some promise there, and then the extreme disillusion, uh, disillusionment, and he, you know, he approaches it with some humor, you know, realizing how crazy some of these lefties were uh, after being with them for a long time. You know, you, you feel sorry for Rothbard, but, you, you know, but at the same time, you, you, you realize that he's smiling at it, looking back on it, so you can smile at it. But this level of detail is unlike anything we've ever had, and it's just the level that you want. It really tells the story. As I mentioned, we did a full show on Rothbard's book, The Betrayal of the American Right. So you can go back and find that if you're interested in it. But I suggest you read it. It's If you're only going to read one thing about the old right, rather than seeking out all these talents individually, that would be the one. And Tom, I just want to leave that book with a, a quote from it that I reread last night. And this is Rothbard. One thing the old right specialized in was anti-establishment muckraking. And, you know, now you bring up COVID policy is sort of the new Cold War, the new boogeyman of the day to replace the Soviet Union or the global war on terror, whatever the thing is today. And I thought when I read that, the two names that immediately came to my mind were the aforementioned Glenn Greenwald and you. Uh, over the last 24 months almost now, uh, this COVID regime we've been living in, the vaccines, and the mandates and the masks and the uh, you know airline travel and all this stuff – we can't even convince libertarians today to be against this stuff. And yet that was the whole uh, M modus operandi of the old right. Sometimes I think everybody indulges in wondering, uh, you know, I wonder, wonder what Rothbard would have to say about such and such issue. Or wouldn't it have been great if there had been a Rothbard report podcast? Or, what? you know, we all think about this and it's fruitless because we can never have it. But having looked at Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book on Fauci, I'm going to be finishing it uh, very shortly. It's a huge book, and it is filled with fascinating information. And I, all I could think of was, this is very, very much like the book Rothbard would have written on Fauci. And he, Rothbard would have had it out in three weeks, you know, <laughs> but it would have been the same book, in, in, at least in many respects. Yes, uh, RFK Jr. has certainly been a brave voice against the regime over the past year or so. And by the way, you went mentioning that we it's hard to get even sometimes libertarians to be sound on this. One thing I've noticed is if there's a libertarian or a libertarian organization that hasn't said anything about the lockdowns, that means they support them. That really <laughs> is that they they're afraid to say uh, to to speak because they know that real libertarians will trounce them, but they genuinely do believe that it's a reasonable thing for everybody to be locked down, so they say nothing. Uh, I'm I'm convinced that the uh, the former chairman of the Libertarian Party, Joe Bishop Henchman, I'm convinced that he favored them. There's no other way to account for the absolute silence, or or he actually for some reason thought masks worked, you know, stuff like that. If they don't say anything, that means they support it. But also, even if they were against it, if they don't say anything, they're worthless. Well, looking back over some of the figures from that period. I'm struck. It's not just what they said and the fact that they spoke up, Tom. It's, it's what they said so eloquently compared to our scribes today. It's almost embarrassing. I want to touch on Albert J. Nock simply because he's a huge avatar, an enormous figure. And he was actually brought up at the recent event we had with Ron Paul in Texas, where Ron himself brought up Isaiah's job, which was, Tom, uh, 
Well, you go back and read that essay now. It's published in 1936 in the Atlantic Monthly, now called The Atlantic. And again, erudite. He goes into, uh, he's using Latin. He's, you know, using biblical references. He's talking about the biblical idea of a remnant, uh, which we can get to. But Tom, to imagine this essay being published in the Atlantic Monthly in 1936, imagine the literary traditions of that day. Imagine uh, the intelligence of the average reader. And I, I couldn't resist, Tom. I went and looked at the Atlantic's website today. You know what their main article is? Oh, I don't it's called, know. It's called, I canceled my birthday party because of Omicron. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, almost 100 years ago, they were running Albert J. Knox, Isaiah's job. So, well, you know, Jeff, we could do the same thing. We could do the same thing for Henry Hazlitt. I mean, w- this was a world where Henry Hazlitt wrote editorials for the New York Times. Yes. You know, and that's Newsweek. that's yeah, that's it's just impossible to conceive of. Uh, but in terms of Knock, I made mention of him and that essay at the Ron Paul Institute event not too long ago, and I I made it into an episode of my podcast called Lessons from the Ron Paul Revolution. And it's a it's a great and wonderful essay. Uh, and I, I have a T-shirt that I got from the Mises Institute that says "Our Enemy, the State" on it, and it's got Knox's face. So I'm, you know, I, pre- I appreciate him. At the same time, I'm going to say something a little unpopular here on the Human Action Podcast. I personally, I don't consider Knox to be one of my favorites. He's, he's a good for for what he is and the things he did. It's okay. He's okay. But for example, I think his biography of Jefferson is is just an atrocity in terms of it's just what a wasted opportunity. Um, I, I want to read about Jefferson, the decentralist, Jefferson, the radical, Jefferson, the nullifier, uh, Jefferson, the secessionist. There's like nothing of that. The, I, I think the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions get about half a page in this book. But there's, you know, he'll dwell on some weird, uninteresting biographical detail for pages at a time. The, I can't stand that. I, I just threw that <laughs> book out the window. So they, they, they weren't infallible, the old right. Well, his Memoirs of a Superfluous Man is a big, big, big book, and we might actually get Professor Bradley Berzer up at Hillsdale to join us for a future episode on that one. That'd be good. Uh, Now, his 1935 book, again, 1935, this is well before uh, Murray Rothbard and the Tannehills were saying these kinds of things. He wrote Our Enemy, the State, which is a really wholesale examination of whether the state itself is necessary. And Tom, I think we have to also give him some credit for his 1922 uh, book, The Myth of a Guilty Nation, because World War I was still pretty raw in the minds of Americans coming back from that in 1922. And that was a pretty brave book for its time. Oh, that's true. I mean, there developed in the 20s this so-called revisionist tradition of Sidney Fay and some others, even Harry Elmer Barnes, uh, wrote about war guilt in uh, in World War One, uh, and the thinking behind that was that because um, of course during World War One, there all the the intellectuals that we're supposed to think are above petty nationalism uh, and and uh, parochialism all fell in line, you know, calling the Germans the Huns and 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 you know spreading all the stories about Belgian babies on bayonets and stuff like that. And, you know, and, and they spread all these stories. And in the 20s, there were some of them who genuinely regretted that and said, we contributed to this international calamity. So now we're going to try to do what we can 
not to you know make sure that doesn't happen mm-hmm. again. And we're going to start with uh, revisionism and revisionism as as being a uh, a major bulwark of peace, so that we understand that war sometimes does not come about because there's just one incorrigibly evil power in the world who just for some reason just insists on being evil that sometimes the world is less cartoonish than that and actually it turns out there was plenty of blame for world war 1 of course there was plenty of blame to go around and so that was part of a movement in the 20s to try to bring about more international understanding as a uh, means of bringing about peace. So the, the, the student exchange movement really got a, a major shot in the arm in the 1920s because it was thought that will foster international understanding. There was a review of—there uh, was a more interest in learning foreign languages in schools as another way of fostering international understanding, reviewing textbooks to make sure that they were not including crude um, caricatures of people of other countries. So that was an extremely noble— uh, movement that that Nock was a, a part of. I'm sure it didn't. Uh, it, it wasn't the world's most popular thing to do, but there were a lot of intellectuals who felt like it was the urgently necessary thing to do. Yes, and a lot of them not only went along with Woodrow Wilson's propaganda, but signal boosted it or participated in it. So it is brave, I think, to engage in revisionist history, and and we need to do that now with regards to uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, for example. This is an, an ongoing problem. Now, here's my critique of Nock, Tom, is that there's a pessimism there combined, oh, with, extreme. An, yeah. with, combined with an elitism, which I think he shares somewhat with H.L. Macon, yes. in that this idea of uh, the remnant, that most people are simply not dumb animals, but they're just unreachable. They're just going to go along and get along as the masses. And so we have to bide our time and get through the darkness which surrounds us. And that hopefully on the other side, there is a tiny remnant, call that 1% or something. They're actually the people who understand the world and they can lead us out of the darkness. I think that's that's problematic for me. That's, God, what a term, problematic. That's problematic <laughs> for me because I think it suggests that average people can't be brought around to understanding their own interests, which we, you and I would argue are markets of property and civilization, uh, even if they don't want to sit around and read books from the old right all day. I don't, I don't think that's true. And I think that pessimism bled through in a lot of his work. Well, you can certainly see that in the essay we mentioned before, Isaiah's Job, that uh, that really is saying that there is this minority of people out there that an elite minority may be able to reach. And I think that is how he would have diagnosed what happened in the Ron Paul Revolution. There was this this minority that passionately believed in the right things, and a completely uncompromising figure managed to reach them. But he seemed to suggest, and this was one of the—because I made a couple of corrections to Nock in my talk, and one of them was he seems to suggest that that number, as, as you seem to be indicating, uh, the number of people who belong to this remnant cannot be increased— that they just, if most people are just going to be dullards and, and you might as well just forget about them. But that's clearly not so. I mean, you just think of how many people say, this man opened my eyes. This man changed my life. This man made me see the world entirely differently. Now, if the remnant couldn't be increased, then all these people's testimonies would be impossible. So that is unnecessarily pessimistic. You can increase the the number uh, on the remnant. Now, at the same time, though, um, uh, you know, I've I've been kind of long-term optimistic, short-term pessimistic, kind of I think like Rothbard, but I'm a little bit, 
a little bit more long-term pessimistic than I used to be after observing people over the past couple of years with COVID, because it's like sense, just good sense cannot penetrate their skulls. And they're going to do things, they're going to cheer their own destruction. I've, that's an amazing feat on the part of the state, that to get people to actually cheer their own destruction. And so I'm very inclined toward the theory developed by a friend I made through the Mises Institute, uh, who is a listener of the Tom Wood Show, Jeff Lescovar. And he published something on lourockwell.com recently, where he says that uh, there have been a lot of attempts to understand why it is that there are some people who... You can predict every single opinion they have. Uh, so they they want to wear a mask, and they also believe in a high minimum wage. Now, what this, those two <laughs> things have nothing to do with each other at all. And yet, almost everybody who wants to wear a mask or who, who shames you about wearing masks, they almost all have exactly the same opinions about the minimum wage. Like, why should that be? And so, you know, there have been attempts to, to wrestle with this. Thomas Sowell has his uh, conflict of visions and all that. And, and, he's, and Lescovar says... It's a lot simpler than that, actually. It is a craving for social status. It is that what's happening here is we're hardwired ever since we were tribal people to not wanting to be expelled from the tribe. If you were expelled from the tribe, you're going to be you're going to be dead. You won't be able to survive. So you're going to want to go along with what the tribe says. You're going to want to go along with with uh, you're going to want to conform. And likewise today, people who, just like when they were in high school and they wanted to be in the popular crowd, and if that means making fun of the retarded kid with, the, with everybody else, then you'll do that. You'll make him miserable. You'll, you'll do whatever you need to do to stay in that group. Well, he's, how else can you account for people who in September 2020 said, I'll never take that Trump vaccine. What do you think? I'm crazy. And then September 2021 basically said you should be excluded from society if you don't take the Trump vaccine. They will believe whatever they need to believe, whenever they need to believe it, in order to be part of that in crowd. They are desperate for affirmation, for being accepted, for being part of the cool kids. And, and I, I think that is a very persuasive explanation. And it's very, very, very hard to cut into that. So, yes, Nock was too pessimistic, but there is nevertheless cause for some pessimism. Yes, I think Twitter is high school, basically. Yeah. So I think Jeff Lescobar is on to something there. And of course, there's psychology. People like Rene Girard have talked about scapegoating yep. and that sort of thing. So it is interesting that a lay person like Jeff, who's a very successful guy in the auto industry, uh, can come at that a little differently. And so we'll link to that. We're going to link to a bunch of stuff with this show, but we'll link to Jeff's article on LRC and let you take a look for yourself. Uh, I want to bring up Tom uh, Frank Chodorov. Now, the Mises Institute recently published an excerpt from one of his, uh, from his uh, late life autobiography. And so we called it the ethic of the peddler class. So it's a chapter from that, which came out just a few years before his death in the early 60s. And it's such a beautiful article, Tom, because it's all about, you know, peddlers used to literally be people with a knapsack and a horse, and they would go around and sell things to people in the hinterlands. And when they made some money, they'd buy a bigger pack to put more stuff in, or maybe they'd get a mule to bring with them. And then eventually, they said, well, how about if I just become stationary, and people will come to me, and that became a store. And maybe they live in the back, or they live above it. And then those became department stores, and all the, you know, just this incredible history. Uh, and I'm struck by the fact that we have such contempt today for the peddler class, when you see this in Gen Saki, 
when she's forced to uh, respond to a question about, oh my gosh, why isn't uh, the uh, you know exercise bicycle I ordered six months ago here yet in the port of Long Beach or something? And she sort of rolls her eyes dismissively. You know, they really have contempt even today for uh, the hustling entrepreneurial class. It's true. And that is also something that goes back a long ways. I mean, the, the merchant class has been viewed contemptuously for a very long time. And of course, the, the primary thesis of Deirdre McCloskey about all this has been that the key thing in Western civilization, you know, that uh, changed things, that, that gave us sustained uh, economic growth was a sudden ch- a change in the attitude toward the merchant class. Instead of viewing them as parasitic or not really understanding, uh, or, or 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 viewing or viewing the economy in terms of a uh, win lose instead of win win, that suddenly that made things possible. But yeah, the contempt, the con- it is so easy. And in particular, people who have ne- it is astonishing. People who have never produced anything of value that anyone would pay one dime for have contempt for you know the productive class it, it's uh, you would be dead without these people you would think you would have a mm-hmm. little bit of of respect for them you would be dead and, and in fact it, you know it, it recalls the the thesis of uh, joseph schumpeter you know capitalism socialism and democracy i mean his thing was that Unfortunately, free societies seem to have this inner dynamic that leads to their destruction, which is that they're so successful in creating prosperity that they are able to support the, sur- the, the survival, the very survival of a, of a critical class, of a, of a carping critical class that does nothing but criticize the very system that keeps them alive and then undermines the very system that keeps them alive. Mm. Well, we see it time and time again. It's like an Ayn Rand novel come to life right now when we're talking about supply chain or inflation. Some interesting little factoids about Frank Chodorov. So one reason he is sympathetic to peddlers is because his father was one, and that's what sustained them. He is the son of Russian Jewish immigrants, grew up on the uh, Upper East Side, excuse me, Lower East Side of New York in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So he saw that world. He understood that world. He actually founded ISI, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, where I believe our friend Dan McCarthy is is currently the head. So that's a you know an incredible thing that during the 1950s, when before Bill Buckley really became who he unfortunately became, uh, there were you know, 50,000 people or so involved with ISI. It was a big force. So that's a huge achievement by Chodorov. And I want to just mention a couple things from this essay. I mentioned the ethic of the peddler class, and we'll link to it. First of all, Tommy brings up, hey, look, we used to call these people proletarians, but because of their merchant status, uh, they can now afford luxuries, they meaning the middle class, the merchant class, that would have been unthinkable not too long ago, like owning an automobile or taking a trip to Florida. So the idea of class mobility is very American. And it's not something we should look down our noses on. All these people who think uh, the 1619 Project people who think America is so retrograde and racist, eh, it, it, it's definitely offered more upward mobility than other societies. The other thing I'd like to point out, Thomas, this beautiful little paragraph he has. He says, it never occurred to this middle class man, so hated by the Gen Psaki's of the world, by the way, that society owed him a living or that he might apply to the government for help in the solution of his problems. Uh, so that's that's so true. And of course, the New Deal, 
criticized by Garrett Garrett and Shodorov, comes a, a, around and creates a middle class entitlement mentality among among previously self uh, reliant, rugged individuals like American farmers. All of a sudden, you start giving them farm subsidies, and that distorts their entire culture, their entire worldview. So this is an important essay, and uh, it shows you that prior to the, we might call the more effete country club, William F. Buckley, George Bush Sr., uh, Ivy League preppy establishment conservatism, there was an old right, Tom, that was far more sympathetic to the common man. Incidentally, when, when Chaudhara founded ISI, it was called the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists, mm. and then they changed it to the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. So I, I don't know. I kind of like the original title, <laughs> even though I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure I go for the, 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 the word individualist because you don't have to be an individualist to be a libertarian. You can have a family. You can belong to a bowling league. You know, you don't have to, you know, so I'm not sure I like that word, but at least I get the radical nature of what they were going for. And yeah, and of course, I I, I hear you because I've uh, gone up against this stuff quite a bit. Now, I get that there is a legitimate critique to be made of certain billionaires because of how they came about their wealth. And you can certainly critique what they do with their wealth. There's no question about that. Some of them do terrible, terrible things with their wealth. And uh, and I, I hear that. But in the abstract, the mere existence of a billionaire, a billionaire who comes about his wealth honestly, uh, you know, I, I sometimes I hear libertarians criticizing billionaires and they think we're, we're just like, you know, we can reach out to Bernie Sanders people because we also are unhappy with billionaires. No, you can't. Because they're not making the distinctions that you're making. I can guarantee you, if you had a Mother Teresa as a billionaire, they would still be against it. Okay, it's it's not how they came about the wealth. It's the having of the wealth. It is not based on a sense of justice. It's based on envy. Uh, the existence of a billionaire, assuming he comes about his wealth honestly, and he's not Bill Gates plotting against you every five seconds, the existence of a of a billionaire who's not a lizard person— is not in any way a problem for you, that it does not contribute to any problem you face in your life right now. There is nothing going on in your life that has anything to do with the existence of billionaires, nothing. And if you are sitting there dwelling on, uh, well, you know, whoever the new guy running Amazon is has a lot of money or whatever, then you are a loser. You, You are a loser and there's no hope for you. Because nothing about your life and your prospects and what you could make of yourself has anything to do with the fact that somebody has a billion dollars. They didn't take it from you. Well, and when you click a mouse with your fingertip and 48 hours later, a bunch of stuff shows up at your door, you're actually benefiting from the vision of a billionaire named Jeff Bezos. And by the way, his company's publicly owned. So if you don't like it, you and your friends can go out and buy a big chunk of it and get a seat on the board and change things. So yes. And Tom, I would like to say this. I don't care how many tax subsidies you might get for buying a Tesla. Elon Musk has more ability and verve and human spirit in the tip, the cuticle of his pinky finger than the parasite Elizabeth Warren, who has been attacking him, will ever have in her entire godforsaken existence. So we do like to character make caricatures of these people almost Randy in caricatures. But I mean, say what you will about Elon Musk, a brilliant visionary. I mean, the world would be worse off without people like him and it would be far better off without Elizabeth Warren. 
Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. And, and it's why it's frustrating to me when I see libertarians saying, oh, well, they're both the same, you know, because they're both parasites in one way or another. I just think I, you must not understand what, what is happening in the world today. You know, I, I mean, you just you're, you're not understanding the story that's unfolding before your eyes, if that's your analysis. Well, I think we should wrap up the show on that note. As I said, we are going to provide some links to some of these people and their best essays at Mises.org so you can check them out. I really think the old right is the political tradition which we ought to be embracing. And I do think anarchism is contemplated within that tradition. It certainly was discussed and considered, uh, whether you personally agree with that or not. Uh, there's a lot here. There was a right wing in this country that was once worth a damn. And I think you owe it to yourself to know about it and to understand it and read a little bit about it uh, to make yourself a, you know, a, a more informed person and a better person. So uh, all that said, I want to thank you, Tom, for your time today. And uh, we're going to do a few more shows as, uh, on the old right before in January, we get back to some really hardcore uh, theory and property and philosophy, probably going to embark on a lengthy, at least month long uh, treatment of some of the uh, seminal Hoppe books on property and capitalism and a and socialism and history. So that'll be fun. Uh, but we've got a few more shows before then. So we're getting ready for Christmas. We wish everybody a very happy holiday season. And we appreciate you, Tom, for your time today. Thank you very much, Jeff. Always a pleasure. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.